Please remain standing for the gospel lesson, which is taken from Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Hear the gospel of the Lord. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it eight hundred. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Today's text, the parable from Luke 16, which we just read, is considered one of the more difficult parables. And as such, it has spawned a number of interpretations. On top of that, the text has also created some distress for readers who are concerned that Jesus appears to be approving an injustice in the text. Now, I believe the difficulties here are more imagined than real, uh, and that the point of the parable is really quite simple and clear. We'll make four points here. The manager, the manager, the debtors, the commendation, the commendation or the approval, the commendation, and then the application. The manager, the debtors, the commendation, the application. So, first here, the manager. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. The text begins, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man who had a manager. So the manager here has great authority and he has a lot of discretion. 
He's essentially the chief operating officer of the rich man's businesses. This is not a slave. This is a manager, and he can act fully as the representative. So in the middle of verse 1, we see that the rich man had an accusation brought to him. And the accusation is that the manager is wasting his possessions. Now, this is not necessarily an an accusation that he was unjust. The word for wasting simply means he squandered his master's goods. He may have been unjust, but all that's required at this point is that he's inept. So he's mismanaged the business in a serious way. And in verse 2, the owner calls him in and says, what is this I hear about you? And the question here from the owner is rhetorical. He's not asking for a defense from the steward. It's it's clear that the owner believes the accusation has merit. He's convinced about the evidence he's seen. And what he's actually doing here, as the text makes clear, is he's firing the manager. He's summarily dismissing him. He says, give an account of your manager. You can be manager no longer. It's interesting that he asks for an account. He says something like this, prepare for me a final statement of the business's financial condition and then clean out your office and look for another job. And one reason why I think we can't accuse uh, the steward or the manager here of outright fraud is that no sane owner would allow him and afford him the trust of pulling together a final statement of affairs. Right? Had the manager been guilty of fraud, when you're firing him, you don't say, and, and prepare for me one last financial statement on the state of the business. You wouldn't do that. If he'd have been stealing, he'd have been fired immediately without any final accounting responsibilities. Right? In, in IBM, when we caught employees in serious ethical violations, once we had the evidence, and once we had the approval of HR and legal, we sent a security person to their office, took their badge, escorted them out of the building into the hands of the authorities. We don't ask for, hey, could you do a little more work for us? Could you prepare a final budget statement? So the firing here, it's important to see, the firing is almost certainly due to incompetence. Fairly gross incompetence, it seems but something short of outright fraud. And so the the, the manager now fired, having to do his final audit. Uh, This creates a sharp crisis for him in verse 3. He's distraught. He begins to scheme. I mean, this is a traumatic life event, as they say. He's been fired. It it creates a lot of irrational behavior. But there's a sort of strange logic in what he does here, and Jesus is going to commend it. So he has a little conversation with himself in verse 3. What shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. And then he, he rehearses his options. I'm not strong enough to dig, which means I'm too old and unfit for manual labor. 
Right? This is the plight of all middle-aged men who get laid off, or middle-aged people. <laughs> he's well compensated. He knows he's unlikely to find a comparable job, but manual labor is not a feasible option. And then he says, I'm ashamed to beg. There's a Jewish proverb that says, better to die than to beg. And so he sees a terrifying future, poverty and unemployment. It's very frightening. And so he concocts this plan. Verse 4, I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do so that, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So the idea is I'm going to make people favorably disposed toward me. I might even spur them on to provide hospitality for me once my layoff goes into effect. He's looking for housing. That's an important point in this parable. Hospitality. So that's the manager. The second point of the debtors, he, he calls in each one of the master's debtors. He says to the first debtor, how much do you owe my master? Notice the money's not owed to him, it's owed to the master. And the debtor replies, 800 gallons of olive oil. Again, as in many of Jesus' parables, these debts are enormous. Uh, this would be maybe three years' pay for a day laborer. And so... The manager, who still apparently has full authorization over the contract process, says to him, take your bill and sit down quickly. And the quickly tells us he knows he's engaged in something dubious. Before he was incompetent, now he is definitely being dishonest. He's in a hurry. Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400 So he's going to just destroy the original contract and write a new one, right? He's not the first bureaucrat to do that in a crisis, right? The, the integrity of contract law is easily dispensed with. So he reduces the bill by 50%. So he saves the debtor about a year and a half's pay. And he does a similar thing with the second one. He asks the second one how much you owe. He says, a thousand bushels of wheat. This is something in the range of seven and a half years' pay. He reduces it to 800 bushels. That's a 20% reduction. That's also about 1.5 years' pay. So in absolute terms, both debtors get about the same amount of relief. The reductions are equal. About a year and a half pay for each person. So that's the plan. And it's executed very quickly. In a crisis, you have to act fast. And that brings us to the difficulty, the third point, which is the commendation or the approval of the master on this behavior. And this is what causes folks some headaches. Let me explain how some commentators try and sanitize the master's actions here. Right? They do this because the narrator, and Jesus is the narrator, says that the master commended the manager in verse 8. He commends this behavior. So what is usually done is something like this. They say, oh, the manager was just removing the interest payments. Right? Interest would be forbidden by Jewish law. So he was just re either removing the interest payments from the bill or he was removing his commission from the bill. 
Thus, there was nothing wrong with what he does. So the, the problem, aside from the fact that the text says nothing to that effect, is that the manager is explicitly called dishonest in verse 8. There's no getting around this. The manager is dishonest. And people who are trying to protect Jesus from approving of a dishonesty say, oh, it means he was dishonest way back in verse 1, but he was not dishonest here. That's why I labored the point to say he actually wasn't dishonest back there. He was just incompetent. He becomes dishonest after his firing. We should be clear, the actions of verses 5 through 7, where he changes the contracts, are unjust. They cannot be excused. The money is not owed to him, it's owed to his master. So, in verse 8, we're told the master commended the dishonored steward because he had acted shrewdly. Now, this is really not that difficult. Notice this. Jesus simply says, the master commended the dishonest steward for his shrewdness, not for his dishonesty. That is the simple solution to what appears to be an ethical problem to many commentators. In other words, the master recognizes what happens. And he says something like this, you clever rascal, even a dishonest scheme can be commended because of its cleverness. So shrewdness, not fraud, is being commended by Jesus in verse 8. Jesus is recognizing that the manager faced a personal crisis. He saw the crisis clearly. He made a provision for his future. He acted with urgency. He was a clever little scoundrel. And so Jesus makes that point clearer in the latter half of verse 8. He says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. So again, it's shrewdness that Jesus is commending. The key phrase here, and this, that's, that sentence from Jesus right there is the heart of this parable. It's what he's trying to teach. So the key phrase is, with their own kind. Which literally means in their own age. And so Jesus is invoking the idea here that there are two ages. This current age and the age to come. Two different ages which determine and shape people's actions. One is this current evil age, the age that the sons of this world naturally inhabit. And the other, Jesus says, is the age to come, the age of the kingdom, which has broken into time in the life and in the preaching of Jesus. So let me give an extended paraphrase of what Jesus is saying there at the end of verse 8. I want to sort of... Um, maybe enlarge it a little. He's saying something like this. The sons of this world are more shrewd with respect to this fallen world order than the sons of light are with respect to the kingdom of God and the age to come. So a few things come into clearer focus here. The steward or the manager 
is a, is a son of this age. He's a man who lives by the principles of this world, this fallen time. And in that age and in that system, he's quite shrewd. Quite shrewd. He's quite sophisticated. Right? Men, fallen men, are often very shrewd by the standards of the world. They know how to save their own skin. They know how to protect and leverage their own assets, minimize risk, cover their bases, secure their future. They're more shrewd with respect to this age, Jesus says, than the sons of light are with respect to my kingdom. Think of the dedicated, you know, zealot, the misguided revolutionary who gives up everything for the sake of his cause. The world is full of people like this who are more dedicated, more shrewd, more committed in terms of this age than the people of God are in terms of the age to come. So there's two overlapping ages that we live in. There's this current age, which Paul calls this present evil age. Then there's the age to come, which has broken into this age. And we live in that tension, that overlap between this age and the age to come. But Jesus says, you have to be characterized by this coming age. And that will affect even the way you handle money, how you handle personal crises. The age to come, which has appeared in Jesus Christ, is everything in the Christian life. It, it touches everything. It pervades everything. So, Jesus is saying the manager faced a crisis. He faced a crisis. And within the perspective of his age, this age, he acted shrewdly. He was urgent and he was decisive. And he's saying, by implication then, the Lord is saying, I wish the sons of light would grasp that I have brought a crisis. A crisis much more acute than being laid off from your job into their midst. And then accordingly, I wish the sons of light would act this way with their money and their resources. And so what he is doing, Jesus is calling us to take radical action with our money, with our resources, because we belong to the age to come. So, once we see the text in that frame, it's clear that Jesus is not condoning any injustice. He wants us to be as decisive toward his kingdom toward the age which is to come, as the steward is toward his own predicament. But as obsessed with the coming age, the age of light which is come in Christ, as the men of this age are with their money. For he implies here the crisis of the kingdom is infinitely greater than the steward's short-term crisis. And that brings us to the application he becomes more specific in verse 9, Jesus does. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth. Worldly wealth is a uh, cleaned up, sanitized translation. It's, it's rendered in, in many Bibles, unrighteous mammon. Use unrighteous mammon. Again, the translation is cleaned up. 
because people don't like the idea that Jesus can actually call money unrighteous. So they, they, they clean the translation up and make it a little more palatable. And they say worldly wealth. But we've seen that Jesus takes a pretty skeptical view of wealth, especially in the parables. He doesn't think it's intrinsically evil, that's true, but he does think it's dangerous. And so the phrase unrighteous mammon is used, and it, doesn't refer to, it does not refer to ill-gotten gains. It doesn't refer to money that was gotten some illegal or dishonest way. So what does Jesus mean then when he says use unrighteous mammon? What does he mean by calling, calling it unrighteous mammon? He means that money is a thing which belongs to this age. This whole order of things. Which Paul calls this present evil age. And because money belongs to this present fallen evil age, it tends to corrupt. This is so foreign to us because we do not think in terms of these two ages. Right? We tend to think of Christianity as a purely vertical affair. God is up here. We're down here. God gives us some rules. We try and keep them. God gives us grace. We fall. He gives us more grace. The whole thing is like this. There's no conception that another age, another time, another order from the future has broken into the present and placed everything in this age under judgment, including money. This conception is wholly lost on American Christianity. Such that it wouldn't even be natural for us to say, well, of course money's unrighteous. It belongs to this age. This is why Paul can instruct those who are rich, his language in 1 Timothy, I instruct those who are rich in this age to use their wealth to lay up treasure in the age to come. Call it eschatological money management. A thing also completely missing from all Christian financial schemes. You cannot talk about how to handle your money without talking about the coming of the age to come in Jesus Christ. It's the fundamental reordering thing about how Christians should handle their money. But we don't do that, do we? We talk about vertical principles. There's this principle, there's that principle. Yeah, well, there's this big global principle, which is money's unrighteous because it belongs to this age, so use it toward the age to come. This is why Jesus says, lay up treasure in heaven. You belong to the age to come, so place your treasure there. Live that reality out out of our pocketbooks, he's saying. And so he says here, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon. Meaning, use the money of this, or, this age, this world, on people and causes which will have an everlasting benefit. I mean, there is a kind of legitimate self-interest here, isn't there? But it, it involves, as it always does for our Lord, self-renunciation. So he says, renounce the this-worldly selfish use of wealth. Disinvest in yourself. Invest in the kingdom. So he says, make friends. Friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. And the end of verse 9 says, so that when it's gone, meaning there's a day coming when money will fail, 
Right? They neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor is this world's money any good in the age to come. All portfolios, just like all human bodies, eventually look the same. Right? They all end up with zero in them. Zero. That's what every portfolio is worth in the age to come. So the day is coming, Jesus is saying, when your money will fail. Notice that at the end of verse 9. Your money will be gone. And a rich fool in an earlier parable failed to grasp this. And what Jesus is saying is the sons of light fail to grasp this as well. But you can't, don't handle your money like you're going to live to be 275 years old. You should handle it like your life is a puff of smoke and a vapor and that, the, and that you can send the money ahead to the eschatological age to come. That's the sane way to handle money, Jesus is saying. He says, use it this way so that when it does fail, he says, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Remember the steward, the manager at the beginning? He hatched this plan so he would have a home to go to. Houses to be welcomed into once he was dismissed from his job. Jesus is saying, look, your home, your house is the eternal dwelling in the kingdom of God. So you're not, you're not looking for homes here. You're looking for a house. He said, use your wealth, he's saying, so that an army of saints will greet your arrival with a joyful welcome in the kingdom of God. Give your money away so that at the resurrection of the dead, there's a welcoming committee. And so this implies a certain kind of orientation to our wealth and our our perspective on the coming reception into God's kingdom. So we give in this life, we give, as Jesus says elsewhere, to those who can't repay. I mean, that makes no investment sense, yet Jesus actually commands it. Jesus has the audacity to say things like, look, don't give your money to people who can pay you back. What good is that? How can he say that? Well, he's not working with the principles of this age. He's working out of another order. He says your payment will come at the resurrection of the just. And part of that payment is going to be an army of men and women who have said, uh, welcome, you have used your wealth for our sake and for the sake of the kingdom. Right? The steward expected reciprocity. I'm going I'm to reduce their bills. They're going to they're receive me into their houses. But it was a reciprocity of this age. You know, I'll reduce their bills, and a few weeks from now, when I need some housing, I'll have some friends I can go to. Jesus is talking about eschatological reciprocity. You use your money, you throw your money toward the age to come in the kingdom of God now, and at the resurrection of the dead, people welcome you into eternal dwellings. So Jesus is calling for shrewdness. Shrewdness. But a key part of the shrewdness is grasping, having a wise perception of the ages. Of the ages. I've often said before that the key question in Christian ethics is not what anyone thinks it is. It is this question. What time is it? And people usually look at me like I have three heads when I say this. But 
So the, question, the, so the answer to the question is this. It is the time of the overlap of the ages. That's the time it is. There's this present age. The future has broken into this present age. And because that is the time it is, that determines the fundamental orientation about how Christians are to think and act and live. Yet it's a question never, ever, ever, ever asked when Christians talk about their behavior. But Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to use your money, if you're going to be shrewd, you're going to need to perceive what time it is. You're going to need to perceive the ages. We live in the present age. Indeed, we do. And there's stuff in it we must do. We can't be angels. We can't dismiss ourselves from this age. But Jesus says, you do live in this present age. So you need to handle money faithfully and shrewdly. But you belong to the age to come. And this should create a crisis, Jesus is saying, that dislodges our affections and priorities and reorients them toward the kingdom. And one way we show that we've grasped this is we use unrighteous mammon to do the work of the Lord, to prepare a welcoming committee for ourselves. This is an objective thing. It's something an observer, an accountant, an IRS agent would be able to notice. So, we could summarize Jesus' teaching here with what he says elsewhere. He says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He's saying something similar to that here. He's saying, take your money, your wealth, your possessions, strip them of their allure, dethrone them, and beef up the welcoming committee that's going to wait for you in heaven. Beef it up. Because this is the hour of crisis for stewards in the house of God. Amen.